This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Thanks for listening one more time. The Clay Young Show here on Podcast225.com, iTunes, and the Talk 107.3 mobile app. A little different. We're going to begin the show with our first guest today. And this, I think, is the 68th edition of the Clay Young Show, and this man has been on four or five of them, so Richard Condon's going to be pissed off yeah, at you, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> Former Baton Rouge Police Chief Jeff LaDuff, who's here with us now, loving life, looking fantastic, moving around in that beautiful car on the outside, <laughs> man. So uh, how you doing, brother? How's I'm it going? doing well. Doing well. You know, we have a really uh, a somber thing to talk about in just a moment, talking about Orlando, but just uh, before then, just kind of catch people up on what you've been up to, because everybody loves to hear about Chief LaDuff, so what's been going on? You know, Clay, uh, we started our own business. Right. We, we do an open-eyes safety training and consulting. We being he and his son, Kelly. Yeah. 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 So, I, I get to work with my son every day, and uh, I mean, just catch up for all that time man. that you may have missed. Yeah, it's working so hard. Thing. Yeah, man. So, tell me about open-eyes. Well, open-eyes, what we do is we will we're 360 degrees with safety. Mm-hmm. We'll come in and we'll do environmental analysis on your place, tell right. you where your vulnerabilities may be, right. make suggestions, and then we'll train your people how to use the new technology mm-hmm. and how to be safe at home, work, and play. Because I think it's important. Your employees are your greatest assets. That's right. And we work with companies to make sure that their employees are safe at work, mm-hmm. and that when they go home, they return the next day as well. Well, how can people contact you? Pull that mic a little bit closer to you. How it's, can people contact you? It, we're easy to find. Uh, we'll start with a phone number, uh, 225-313-9713, or you can contact us at info at com. There you go. So call the chief. Ask him about coming and doing an assessment in your building, because nowadays it is so important, and I think that's a perfect segue into the main reason that we are here on Sunday morning uh, most of us wake up to the tragic news about what had happened in Orlando really earlier in the morning Sunday morning Uh, and I called Jeff I guess about mid-morning and obviously you were watching it and you knew I was watching it and so we chatted about it and we agreed that we'd come here and talk about it when when you first heard the news about the shooting and you turned on one of the cable nets or by that time some of the locals were talking about it too to hear about what was happening, what was your first reaction? Terrorism. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, So why did you immediately go to terrorism? Because the number, you know. Okay. Uh, I look at these things in two ways. I don't okay. think everything is an active shooter. Okay. My study tells me this two cases there's either active shooting or an active shooter okay an active shooting is what we've dealt with in our community yeah uh, you have somebody who knows a target mm-hmm. they have a situation between them usually domestic something a fired person you're right. angry at the business right, right you come back in and you have a target mm-hmm. you're taking out something personal on that group right all right I declare that as an active shooting. I think we had something like that at a technical college here we a few did. years ago. We did. Yeah. We did. And uh, and at a hospital here. Yeah. So we, I think an active shooter is that mass killer. 
He wants a body count. Mm-hmm. He wants to put as many people down. He he doesn't. His agenda is different. It's driven by religion. It's driven by hate. Mm-hmm. It's driven by by some emotion. It's not personal to right. Him. It, it's not. It's a statement. It's a statement. Okay. And when when they said twenty, and then I heard that first press conference and it jumped to fifty. Mm-hmm. I'm like, nah, man. This guy was ready. Mm-hmm. He was. He he knew where he was going. And now I know he bought a six. He bought a good weapon, man. Yeah. He didn't buy an off-the-shelf just, you know, something that's going to mm-hmm. look look right. like it's dangerous. He bought a, a really good weapon. That will do what you want it to do. It's going to function. Yeah. Yeah, man. So he went in there to do damage. So as of the former head of a law enforcement agency, there's a lot of rhetoric about this and what could have been done what wasn't done. And this is why the first conversation I'm even having about this on the show is with someone who actually has experience in dealing with matters similar to, similar exactly. to this. Um, maybe not this particular motivation, but right. similar style. I mean, you similar were police style. chief when a guy walked into a church one Sunday morning and starts and, to and, shoot and people. kills five feet. Right. So law enforcement had, this guy had no record. Uh, that would have prevented him from owning a gun. He actually worked security for a while. People around him were aware of some of his thoughts. Apparently his wife understood that this was something that he was considering doing. How do you breach that wall of, there's no way you're going to know unless somebody says something to be able to stop this. Is it, it, is there any way possible to do that? No. I, I, the thing that I believe we want the FBI to be responsible for mm-hmm. this. And that's what I'm getting from some of the talking heads out yeah. there. They could have done more. They followed him for 10 months. Listen to me. 10 months is a long investigation. That's y'all. right. I mean, that's a lot of man hours. Yeah. That's a lot of effort. Yeah. I, I think they did what they were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Stop blaming them. It's us. That man has neighbors. Yeah. He has people that he work with. Yeah. There's, there's uh, uh, employees at the businesses that he worked. Somebody around him. Heard something. Had to walk by and say, hmm. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. And they kept it. Yeah. You know, see something, say something, yeah. man. It's time for the BS to stop. So are you, uh, let me ask it this way. Let's Let's say. God forbid something like this happens again, but unfortunately, I think we'd be naive if we said we didn't expect to see something like this again. Uh, unfortunately, this is the world we now live in. Yes. If, uh, if a legislator, federal legislator or statewide, because you know electeds just like I do, if one called you and said, <clears throat> excuse me, chief, we are thinking about filing a piece of legislation that has a soft punishment that we can impose on someone that we can prove may have known about the motives of people like this guy. Let's say we find out he was expressing his intention to murder people. And then he went out and did it in the name of uh, Islam or ISIS or whatever. Whatever. What's your, because they're going to people, they're going to be people who say he's got a right to rant and say anything he wants to say. But then there's the other side who says, this guy clearly seemed serious about what he was doing. You guys knew he was saying these things. You didn't say anything. Where would you fall on prosecuting people who may have known? Prosecute him. Wow. I'm telling you. And, and the federal government is doing that. Look at the Charleston case. Yeah. yeah. 
the young man that was uh, the neighbor, the friend, he's being prosecuted under that charge now. Yeah. And, and facing up to three years in prison. But so, kicking it up a notch to, like you said, the gun owner, the, the guy who owned the, the gun store uh, where he bought his, uh, his semi-automatic, he said he didn't see anything strange about the guy, basically. There was nothing that would have prevented him from selling it to him. Right. And he basically said if he didn't buy it from me, he was going to be able to get it from somewhere else. I, I agree. Uh, I, psychologically... I tend to fall on, <clears throat> fall on the side of this isn't an issue of guns. It's a shame that he uses right. this AR-15 to do what he did. But I think this is more a mental health uh, community issue than it is about the gun. Because we've seen terrorists use all kinds of bombs that are manufactured from all kinds of materials, use knives. Mm-hmm. Right. His weapon of choice just happened to be a gun, but he was hell bent on causing mass murder. That's that's no doubt, and, and, and I'm the same way. I, I'm a Second Amendment guy. Me too. You know, I, I'm telling you, I'm a Second Amendment guy, and uh, I think I'm responsible with my weapons. And I know this kid had training. Yeah. You know, and, and that makes him. Most of these people have not had training. Clay, go right. back and look at our active shooters. Right. They buy a weapon. They get somebody to buy the weapon. They look at videos. They go to a shooting range. They teach themselves how to shoot. Mm-hmm. And thank God for that. Mm-hmm. Because I think the count, there's a couple of things that made this body count higher. Number one, proximity and crowdedness. Yeah. The, the thickness of the crowd yeah. inside of that facility. I do believe that ballistics will show when they through with their investigations and the coroner has done what he needs to do with these poor poor victims that mm-hmm. died Sunday morning, you're going to find that multiple victims were killed with one shot. Wow. One shot. I'm telling you. Uh, the way those those kids were stacked up against each other, I've heard a couple of the uh, survivors talk about their being on top of each other. Man, this kid was shooting a 5 by 5 6 the same as a two two three round. Yeah. That thing is going to zip through right. me and you. Right. Right. If I don't have armor on, something right. to slow it down, it's right. got a hard surface to bounce off of it, to, to keep it. If we stacked up, it's going through a couple of us, man. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, look at Boston. Those guys built a bomb in their mom's kitchen. Right. You know, they were hell bit. They, <laughs> right. They, yeah. they took the, the rice cooker and right. said, I'm going to kill a ton of people. So it's the person. It, it's, how did we get here? That, it, I think, I think you know, the it? amazing thing is I think we have been on our way here for longer than 9-11. We talked about this. Yeah. There were attempts on the World Trade Center before 2001. Right. And the radicalization of, you know, a certain segment of people who practice Islam is problematic. But I think it is a, it's a method used by people who want to cause mass hysteria <clears throat> and want to kill a bunch of people. This guy called 911 in addition to some other people and apparently said something on Facebook. He claimed he claimed responsibility in the name of ISIS. Right. We know that this is the new or the the most recent hot button for ISIS because they're throwing gays off, off of buildings, building, chopping their heads off. Yeah. yeah. And I wish I knew the answer to deal with them. You want to wipe them off the planet, I get that. But that's simplistic. It's more complicated than that. Yeah, because, 
man, this is America. Yeah. Everybody's trying to come here. Right. And here we have people here. This is an American citizen. Man. Yeah. This yeah. boy was born here. Yeah. What did we do you? And he's you know, saying he wants America to stop bombing his country. He's in his country. That's what I'm talking about. How did this ideology, I don't care how bad it is here, Clay. You know, I, I've spent $4 and something <laughs> for a, a gallon of gas. Uh, do we have issues in our country? Man, I've traveled a little bit. Yeah. Ain't none better than this. Amen. <laughs> You're not going to get me to raise my hand and <laughs> to go somewhere else. to nothing else. That's exactly right. Nothing That's else. That's exactly right. But what do you do about that, though? I mean, this is now going to be a political issue of a higher tier even more now. It was always going to be on the table because we are in this thing with terrorism. But the fact that this happened, these kids. Right. You know, the video of these kids it's right. striking. He knew what he was doing. He apparently had been casing that place for a little while. Right. Uh, one of the people there said they saw him in there for a while before he decides to do this. I think it's intel collecting. I think the kid wants to be the police at some time. His ex-wife said he had. So I think he's done some. He's hung out with police. He's mm-hmm. learned the process maybe. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some discussion whether or not he's homophobic, mm-hmm. you know, whether he was gay, yeah, I don't know. My thing is, I think he's trying to use some stuff that he's learned and case the joint. You know, yeah, he wanted to get the layout of it. He wanted to see. I think he was on those sites trying to see what was the best night, right? You know, where so, he could catch the biggest crowd and maybe do the most damage. Yeah. So let me ask you, what would you advise law enforcement officials? And I know that you don't get into, you don't fall into the business of telling people. Who do what? Who do what you did? How to do their jobs? But if you're advising people on ways to be more conscientious about your environment, because I know you teach commercial businesses that right. that's one of the things your company does. How what would you advise? Number one and two. Let me tell you this. I think law enforcement is doing the right thing. Okay. Look at the hospital. Let's start with the hospital in Orlando. Okay. Days before this shooting, they did a mass casualty drill. Okay. That's the best thing that they can be doing. I'm sure law enforcement was involved in that some kind of way because I've done that with hospitals that I've worked with. Right. You know, been part of the drills, given information. I know that law enforcement came in from, we've done it here in Baton Rouge. Right. You know, we brought law enforcement in that worked with hospital staff to tweak and help and get going. So that's helping both areas. I know law enforcement is training. I know those policies and procedures have been updated to work on these responses. They had the equipment. They had a plan. This one took a while because of the, this guy took hostages. Yeah, which was different, which is different than what they normally do. Because I've never, you don't really hear that. They go and they kill everybody and then they take themselves out. But why why do you think he kept hostages? I, I think he got trapped, okay? And I don't think he... Clay, this guy was in some kind of flux. Okay. I, I don't... I, two things that they don't do. Okay. If you're a jihadist, you, you've lost your mind, and Allah has promised you whatever he has, mm-hmm. and you go and you make that move, and you're going to kill a ton of people in the name of religion, mm-hmm. in the name of, of, of Allah. Yeah. You don't negotiate. He negotiated. Right. He called... And he negotiated. I don't know yet what was said to the Orlando Police Department. Interesting. But, man, have you ever heard of a jihadist negotiating? Do you think this is an anomaly, something about him? 
Or could this potentially be a new wrinkle in the way it, that these people do things? I think it things? could be a wrinkle. Boy, that's a problem. Yeah, man. That's scary. Because that's one thing that they have not done to this point is negotiate. None of them. And they all go in with the intention, you know, the, of the major ones we've seen with the intention to to die. Yes. In the chaos that they cause. Right. Or kill themselves. Or, or now that some of them you see they want to plan a gun battle on the way out, but they do plan to die in a hail of gunfire. Look at all these people. Go to the, the guy at Virginia Tech. They found the, the, the audio right. and visual uh, taping. Uh, you could, all, they leave something behind mm-hmm. to, to build their legacy, and right. I, I think that's part of it. They want you to know what they were thinking and what they were doing and why they did it. Uh, look at the black guy that, that it, it, I think it was in New York somewhere that, that was uh, they caught before he – Interacting. Oh, the had, shoe bomber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had already. Or was the underwear bomber? I can't remember one. <laughs> yeah, of them. but he had already built his video library. Yeah, yeah, so they could find it. You know, so they caught him before he could hurt anybody. Right. It's afterwards we find it in the investigation. This guy starts negotiating. Hmm. That scared the hell out of me. Boy, oh boy. See, you'll see why I called him in here to talk with us about this. You know, just transitioning just a little bit to locally here. You know, since we, we've we been friends a long time and you've always consistently talked about the summer months. Right. And how that was a time. Like you, you guys are on your game, you know, all year long, but particularly so during the summer. Right. It's hotter. People are right. outside. All the things going on. Whereas in the cold season, people aren't out hanging out as much. Exactly. Uh, Kind of talk through your philosophy about that. I, I think what happens is is that we release in the summer. Mm-hmm. Inhibitions. We wear less clothes. Yeah. We, we got our top down. Yeah. We, 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 we're walking. We, we're walking around those beautiful lakes and, mm-hmm. and taking those runs. So for a criminal, there's three elements. You have to have a person who's willing to commit a crime. There has to be a target of that crime. And there has to be an opportunity for that crime to occur. Wow. The opportunities are higher. It's a target-rich environment in the summer. Because of our weather, because of what all goes on, I think we just have more targets for the criminals to find in the we, summer. We got a, only a couple minutes. I know you got another engagement, but I want to ask you this on behalf of the people listening, the average everyday citizen. What advice would you give them now about their person and their property in terms of safety? Pay attention to the unusual. The thing that strikes me the most in these interviews from Paris, from San Bernardino, from last weekend and Orlando, in Orlando mm-hmm. is people don't want to believe that they're in this kind of a situation, a critical situation where they may die. They used, listen at what those kids said. They said, we didn't react because we thought it was part of the music. Each person that was interviewed originally said, I thought it was in beat with the music. You cannot. It's unusual. Mm-hmm. If it sounds, sounds unusual, look unusual, react to it, damn it. Right. Don't wait right. no more. Right, you right. You got to start looking for a way out. You got to look for something to get behind. You got to know the difference between cover and concealment. You have to know where to go. When I walk into a place in a restaurant, the first thing is I feel the width of that table. If the table is thick enough and somebody starts shooting, I'm going to flip that table over. I'm going to slide it on the floor, and I'm going to get to a door. Mm-hmm. Those kids in that bathroom could be alive. They should have taken their pants off, tied them together, and tied that door. They could have made a, a 20-foot rope, mm-hmm. tied around the handle, get away from the door, stretch out, and have 10 people holding it. He can't get in. And then when he starts shooting, where is he going to shoot? At the lock. 
because his brain's not going to tell you that they're 20 feet away in a corner. Right. Get low. They tend to shoot high because mm -hmm. they're untrained. Mm -hmm. So do things to protect you, your family. I don't live paranoid. I live safe. Mm -hmm. I, I'm enjoy my community. That's right. I'm going to go to everything that it has. Right. But if I'm standing up and I hear, that sounds like gunfire to me. Yeah. I might be the guy laying on the ground. Right. And somebody going to come up and say, Chief, what you doing? I said, what was that? They said, oh, that was a truck backfiring. I'd rather dust myself off and look stupid than be dead. Amen. I'm going to be the guy yeah. talking to CNN. So, all right. So in the days to come, we're going to learn more and more about this guy. And I want to spend an hour not just talking about him, but I want to talk about how terrorism to this point has been a federal issue where we, for the most part, think about it as something the military deals with. And it is a function of what the military does in fighting terrorism. But it's more and more becoming a local community issue because exactly. the Orlando, the Orlando Police Department uh, and you know law enforcement in that area, the county, everything, they have to deal with this as well. You talked about the hospital a little bit. This has to be something that is every city in America, regardless of size, should have a game plan in the event that this happens, unfortunately. Right. Every city, every shooting that we've had in this country, local law enforcement, look at Lafayette, Lafayette, right. Louisiana. Right. They were the first responders. That's right. We're on the ground level. Right. Local law enforcement is on the ground level with yeah. this, man. Yeah. And the, the state, the state, local and state, mm -hmm. uh, the FBI comes in. Right. Now, yeah, they, they're right there and they're the experts in this, mm -hmm. man. They have the counterterrorism people. But local law enforcement has to be prepared because you're the ground level. Now, I, you know, I, I, we're right on, on the line here, but I got to ask this question just because, and you may tell me that you've heard that this isn't the case. We know that the FBI had been watching him for nearly a year. Has it been said that they shared that information with law, local law enforcement? I, I've not heard that. They, it may have happened, but I've not heard I've that. I've not heard it. So in the event that they did not, that they had the idea that this guy might be involved with a terrorist organization, which we all get they are intent on killing Americans. And you're the chief, and you find out they were watching him in your town and they didn't tell you. What's your reaction? Well, I'm pissed. But let me tell you, Florida Department of, of Law Enforcement, mm -hmm. I, 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 will, I will tell you, I've, I've dealt with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. They are like... Uh, they're the investigative arm of that state. Just as in Louisiana, the communication now is much better than it was okay. 10 years ago. Okay. We have the Fusion Center here. If that would have happened here, the federal government is dumping that information into the Fusion Center. The Fusion Center is sending it out. Okay. We have monthly meetings here. Okay. I, I know they're doing the same thing in okay. Florida. Okay. I, I haven't heard, and I can't say. So, because we don't want to throw no, anybody under the, no. under the bus. We don't know yet. But, but if they hadn't said anything, yes. that's a problem. But I, I know what our model looks like here. Yeah. And I feel confident yeah. that there was a threat. Colonel Mike Edmondson would have called me and said, yeah. Jeff, there's a threat. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my guys, my intel guys would have heard at the uh, Fusion Center meeting, mm -hmm. the intel meetings that we have. So I know as progressive as uh, FDLE is, mm -hmm. they would have done the same thing. I'm, I'm praying that they did. Former police chief Jeff LaDuff. 
Tell people again how they can contact Open Eyes if they want to find out more. 225-313-9713 or contact us online at info at openeyesbr.com. Now, at some point here, we got to go strap on the feedback. What, what are we waiting on? I'm hungry. <laughs> Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. This is the Clay Young Show on Podcast225.com. Back with John Cuvion, as promised. I told you guys last week I was going to reach out to John to talk about the political landscape. I didn't know at the time when I said that, that new in uh, the political sphere would be a discussion about this terrorist attack in Orlando. And that has had an impact on the rhetoric coming from both the Trump and the Clinton campaigns. Uh, We are also going to talk about the first nearly six months of the John Bell Edwards run as governor of the state of Louisiana. First up, John, how are you, bud? Pleasure to be here today, Clay. So I got a lot to talk about. Uh, First up, let's do the national stuff. This is where we pretty much expected to be when last we spoke. Trump was going to be the nominee of the Republican Party you know, barring some crazy thing at the convention. Now we know that's not going to happen. He reached the number before that we even get to that convention. Yes. Hillary Clinton, as I think we both understood, was no doubt going to be the Democratic nominee. And even though Bernie Sanders has not officially dropped out of the race for president, for all intents and purposes, it's all done. She's the she's already been named the presumptive nominee. So right. looking at the landscape going forward. Before we drill down into the specificity of these campaigns, how does the matchup of Trump v. Clinton play out for you? So the way I look at it is you're talking about two candidates, both of whom have significant negatives. And their challenge right now is basically to establish that they're a legitimate contender. And in fact, one of the things I always like to tell people is that the June-July period is really the one that matters the most in presidential campaigns because that's when impressions are being formed. I saw back as far ago as 1988 and recently in 2012 that ad campaigns that were being done on either side of the political spectrum Mm -hmm. played a large part in shaping the ultimate outcome. So now the narrative has shifted some. You talked about the negatives and positives. Yes. Let's talk about the positives of both candidates first. Yes. So Hillary Clinton has a lot of experience. She's, you know, so she can plausibly say that she has the experience to do the job from day one. She also has the electoral wall. In other words, you have a collection of states that have consistently voted Democratic for the past 20 years. California with its 55 electoral votes. Yes, and then you have some subsidiary ones like Illinois and Michigan and Pennsylvania and so forth. So you have those states that have voted consistently Democratic. You're talking about 240 electoral votes. That Mm -hmm. is a huge head start. Well, when you've got to get to 270. Yes. You know, that's, I mean, that's why this is so important. You're only trying to get to 270. Yes. So any other positives there for her? I would say that her demeanor 
in other words, she can plausibly look presidential, and she's been put in some unfavorable circumstances recently, such as when she was called to testify in front of a House committee. And About Benghazi? Yes. Kind of put herself in that position, though. Well, yes. But what I'm saying is, not, not the one where she said, what difference does it matter, but the most recent one that she was testifying, it made it look like the Republicans were trying their hardest to hurl darts at her, and sure. she was calmly swatting them sure, away. Sure, sure. That kind of temperament, I think, does have some attractiveness to voters. Mm-hmm. What I think will be fascinating, and I'm probably already like spoiling, you know, the next thirty minutes of your show. Yeah. What's going to be fascinating to me is going to be the first debate to do debate between the two. But I digress. Uh, now you talk about the positive of Donald Trump. Yep. I would say that his experience and the perception that he's a success. Yes. Because people want a winner. Yeah. Even though Donald Trump kind of coined the term about, you know, how his winning made him a legitimate candidate, the fact is being a winner does make you more appealing to mm-hmm. candidates. Because you notice how, uh, to give you a perfect example of the flip side of being a winner, Michael Dukakis became a household joke for years after his loss for presidency. That's right. It was, in fact, I think it was one of the Naked Gun movies where they showed the picture. It was the Blue Room where they showed the Titanic, the Hindenburg, and Michael Dukakis. Michael Dukakis, yes. And so the thing is, that losing, I think, does give kind of a negative impression, whereas Donald Trump can plausibly say that he's made a lot of money and that he's a non-politician, he's an mm-hmm. outsider. That, to me, would be what his positives would be. I also think, too, when you talk about rating candidates— I always like to look at the raw material. In other okay. words, going beyond polling numbers and looking at the essence of the candidate. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump has a mental toughness about him. In other words, he wants to win. Yeah. I mean, it seems kind of cliche to say that a candidate wants to win, but I'm talking about the would you walk over hot coals to run for president kind of mentality. And yeah. my perception is Donald Trump does have that. What about negatives? Oh, negatives. Yeah. Here's where the fun is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's negatives... Just as her experience is a positive, her experience is a negative because you could also make the argument that she's old hat, mm-hmm. she's a has-been, she's been around since the 1990s. There's also been lingering questions about the ethics of both of the Clintons, which yeah. I think will rebound to her in a negative way. Yep. And the thing was, that ethical perception, I think, is what has allowed the email scandal to have had as much longevity as it has. Right, right. I think because there is a perception that she's crooked yes and i guess i'm as i say that out loud that's a nickname trump has given her but i think he's playing that 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 card up that that's the perception of her by some what about him because he's got a lot of negatives too quite a few but i would try to keep it simple for purposes of your show and that is his mouth (laughs) (laughs) yeah because everything all comes back to his mouth yeah because the thing is there are people who love the fact that he's unfiltered. Yeah. But his sometimes unfiltered- he's just an air horn. Sorry. Right. Just uh, there are lots of things that he says that people can agree with. Comments about loving the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, comments about protecting military veterans. Everybody can agree with that. Yes. Uh, creating jobs. He has talked about the unfair equilibrium of some of our trade deals with other countries. And I think he's right. And that's not opinion. I mean, the the facts bear that out. The problem with him is going back to what I said earlier about how he plays to win Mm -hmm. that play to win, I think creates a tendency where he wants to subdue an opponent with brass knuckles where perhaps it wasn't called for. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. And this is inside baseball stuff, but 
I look at the inside baseball stuff because it does ultimately affect things. What Trump did recently, which I thought was very ill-advised, there were several things. The first was he went to a rally in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and mm-hmm. he started attacking the state's Republican governor. Yeah. I thought that was extremely poor form. Yeah. Recently, what he has done is he's made some smart-aleck remarks about Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney, which you have to remember, now that he's a Republican nominee, he has to make nice. Yeah. Because one of the things the California results— Does he really, though? Well, here, ah, this is a very mm. good debate, and this is one I enjoy engaging in with people in and outside of the political circus. If you're talking about getting 51% of the vote slash 270 electoral votes, yeah. he does have a majority of the Republican Party on his side, but that stubborn minority can create all kinds of problems no for question. him if you're talking about, say, winning Florida or Virginia mm-hmm. or swing states. Ask Mitt Romney. Yes. Or John McCain. And, you know, what I think is a perfect example of kind of that lingering anti-Trump vote is when the California results came in, Trump got 75 percent of the vote, which as a presumptive nominee where your opponents have already dropped out and they're they're only staying on the ballot just because California didn't remove them. Right. That 25 percent to me is a danger sign for Trump. If you were talking about swing states. Now, Mm -hmm. California, I don't for a millisecond think that Donald Trump has a chance there. But if you're talking about uh, places like Florida and Ohio and Pennsylvania where every Republican vote counts, you do need to play nice. And you're talking w- with the states you just named, that's well over 50 electoral votes. Exactly. Okay, I think there's 28 maybe in Florida, 18 in Ohio. Uh, 20, 29 and uh, I think it's 18 in Ohio, yes. Yeah, so, you know, and, 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 when you, and Pennsylvania, so it's important. There are a couple of things about him that, that are bothersome because I think he takes a lot of his style as a businessman and he applies it to politics and some of it, some of it has worked to his advantage in, in that he says what he really thinks he shoots from the hip. Yes. But even in business, there has to be a level of discernment about what you say and when you say it and who who you say it around the comment about the Mexican judge or saying Mexican judge that hurt him a lot. It's it's uncalled for. And the reason that the Charles Krauthammers of the world who no one can deny his bona fides as a political observer an intellectual and, and people like that come out and they distance themselves from it because the argument, the way he made it didn't do him any favors. Right. And this was at a time that he was riding a wave of pretty positive momentum, and then he talked himself into a corner. Yes. And this controversy absorbed the air out of the room, which left, and this happened around the time that Hillary Clinton was becoming the first female to win the nomination of a major party. Yes, and one of the things I think that you can appreciate being in the PR business, the worst thing that can happen to a candidate is that he or she says or does something that reinforces an existing perception. Stereotype. Yes. That's exactly right. You you don't want to enforce that. And, you know, one of the things that I see him doing now is he reads a teleprompter. Yes. And that, to me, based upon what we know about him, reflects an acquiescence to the fact that he is, his lack of discipline has hurt him. 
Right. Because he he's he had said he was never going to do that. I'm not going to do that like these politicians. And I think his daughter probably because she seems to be the person he listens to the most. Ivanka's the common sense. That's right. Yeah, voice. They've gotten him to, to, to walk it back. Make no mistake about it. Hillary Clinton can beat Donald Trump. Oh, absolutely. But Donald Trump has a could shot win. at beating Hillary Clinton. He could win as oh, yeah. well. This comes down to the candidates more than anything else because both candidates have high negatives. Right. In other words, the majority of people on both sides don't really, they're not either sure or they don't like the candidate. It's a combination of the two. Would you agree with that? Yes. I would also say, too, when you talk about the candidates, the other thing that really matters in going all the way into November, the intangible things such as candidate organization, Yeah. Donald Trump has a disdain for the traditional organization of, of political campaigns. Yeah. He has a disdain for polling and data and so forth, which I think is a very foolish attitude to have because when you're talking about states where fifty to 100,000 voters can swing the outcome, mm-hmm. having the tools to squeeze those last possible voters out is extremely important. Right. Because one of the biggest myths about politics is that people just go to the polls out of you know osmosis. The truth is... You do have people who have to be pushed, pulled, and dragged to the polls. And if you don't have the organization to do that, that will cost you. They'll stay home, a lot of them, or you you have to make the case. And and both of their cases, in my opinion, and I'd love your mm-hmm. your reaction to this. Okay. They both there there is a segment of the Republican Party that hates Hillary Clinton. Yes. There's a segment of the Democratic Party that hates Republicans. Yes. And there are, in the Democratic Party, people who are tried and true Clinton supporters. They go with Bill and Hillary on everything. And even if they don't like Hillary, they get Bill. So she gets them (laughs) by, you know, almost association. Right, best of both worlds. They're people who are in the Republican Party who have a largely libertarian mindset who don't like the idea of the government telling them how how to live their lives and they like the brash bombosity of a Trump as a candidate because he talks like I talk. Right. You know, but the larger section of people are those who are watching this to determine who will they vote for or will they go out and vote? Yes. And that's where Trump and, and Hillary Clinton have to make the case to those people. They've got to make the case why they are the candidate you should vote for, more so than a lot of other people have in the past. Is that wrong? Yeah, the, the swing vote The swing vote is extremely crucial. And I would say that there's a specific belt of states that I'm looking at in terms of if Trump can have a, a chance at winning. Yeah. And that belt of states starts in Minnesota and Iowa, mm-hmm. continues through to Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire and Florida. Okay. Those are the states with about 140 electoral votes that will win or lose the presidential election. One of the things you'll notice about all those states, they all have a large blue collar and or downscale uh, part of the electorate Mm -hmm. who conceivably would be attracted to Donald Trump's gut appeals on the issues. In other words, there's a lot of states I've deliberately left out of the mix because right. I think that the upscale voters and or the emerging classes of Asians, Hispanics, and or blacks would make, put it beyond reach for Donald Trump. And those states would be like Virginia and yeah. Colorado yeah. and Oregon and New Mexico. I don't have much 
uh, belief that Donald Trump could carry those states. No, I think his rhetoric is can be over the top, but I think he does it on purpose. To some extent, yes. And well, I think a lot of it, it because it's it's been his history of doing that. It, you know, it, it, he makes the case for it in the art of the deal. I mean, he talks about pushing to the extremes, yes. and then as you get closer to the deal and you know you're going to lock it down, then you back it down and you move to normalcy. Well, I think he was on his way towards normalcy, but has put his foot in his mouth on a couple of occasions, and it cost him. Right, and here's the other thing, too, about art of the deal versus the real world, is that when you're talking about playing games with business competitors, that's one kind of psychology, but when you start insulting voter groups... To think that you could suddenly turn around and patch things up, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. In other words, and this is going back to what I said a few minutes ago about reinforcing existing stereotypes, in Mitt, Romney, in Mitt Romney's case, the Democrats did a masterful job of persuading him as this out-of-touch elitist yeah. who you know, had the car elevator and the 47% and the etch-a-sketch. In Donald Trump's case, the mantra the Democrats, I think, are going to peddle with some success thus far is that he hates Hispanics. I think that his first speech, it's still living. Yes. You rarely ever hear that in politics. Because people have short memory, the media does not. Correct. Because the media has tape. So they could just replay something over and over and over again. I mean, how many of us saw Howard Dean screaming after the caucuses, right? Yes. You know, I just, I, he, his lack of discipline has hurt him. And we'll, we'll go to Clinton in just a moment. But the way he addressed Orlando, and I want to spend a special amount of time talking about that. Yes. So let's not do that yet because I want you to spend some time there. Let me, let's I even go, have a poll to talk about on that, but yes. Let's, let's go back to his con- <clears throat> what you said will stick to him because I also want to talk about uh, Secretary Clinton. The narrative that he's a racist is actually inconsistent with his past. Right. But because his campaign has been undisciplined, they have not been able to effectively make the case that he has racism. Being a racist, being a loudmouth is consistent with him since he hit the scene over 30 years ago. Yes. But being a racist is inconsistent with that. Right. His policy about strong borders and better, a better vetting process of people coming into the country is something if packaged the right way. I think the majority of people will can, can at least understand, if not agree with. Right. His opinion of the radical portion of p- people who practice the faith of Islam spoken the right way would draw not only agreement from non-Muslims, but some Muslims who see what this, like this guy in Orlando do, see something like that as an affront to who they are because they don't feel like they, they're going to go out and kill Americans. Right. He lacks the discipline, not the intellect, but the discipline to be able to effectively make that case. So I want you to speak to that, but wait a minute because you're a smart guy. So I'm going to throw another heavy one at you at the same time. Then on the other side, you've got Hillary Clinton, who has patented phony. She can look phony better than anybody else can look phony. Right. She can pander in a more disgusting way than almost any other candidate on the political landscape. She can pander. She can, and, and she doesn't seem believable when she says things. Right. However, she's disciplined. 
mm-hmm. and she's smart. <clears throat> and she knows how to deliver a speech that walks a fine line of nuance between appeasing the people she most wants to keep on her side and at least holding back people who would like to figuratively burn her at the stake. And that may be the biggest difference between the two as campaigns. Right. I'll listen to you, sir. So my thought about those two approaches, which you just described as this, is each of those styles is appropriate at a different time. Now, with regards to the Orlando incident, mm-hmm. what I think the appropriate answer here, and this is a general one that any presidential campaign would be wise to follow, that is, in the time of crisis, people instinctively rally to the president. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing you could do is within the first 24 hours after that crisis to shoot your mouth off if you are not the president. Right. I will go back to 2012. One of the things that, in my opinion, of the many things Mitt Romney did to throttle his campaign, the way he responded prematurely on Benghazi, I think, hurt him. Because, number one, it kind of violated the 24-hour rule. And number two, people were going to rally to President Obama in that first 24 hours out of the crisis before more information I think people at least wanted to hear where the president came from on this. And his speech was nitpicked. He did not use the phrase, he did not use the word Islamic in qualifying the type of radical Islamic in qualifying the type of terrorism, but he called it a terrorist attack. And I've said this, President Barack Obama is not going to be on the ballot. Right. And if you you can't effectively make the case with an unpopular candidate or an unpopular incumbent that the person in their party who's seeking to replace them is actually someone who wants to have an additional term on the person before them. Exactly. Very, very good. But Trump can't effectively pull that off. Right. For one thing, Barack Obama's not unpopular right now. So well, and that's that the other thing. It's like un- popularity-wise, his national approval rating is actually quite high. It's over fifty percent. Yes. Yeah, and so, and and when people hear these kinds of discussions, for people like you and me, we base our positions largely on, at least when we're speaking on on the microphones, on what the data is. Right. And so, yes, the president's approval rating is above fifty percent, and. The other thing I'll throw at you, because I want to spend more time on Orlando, but I want to work my way back there. Sure. Can you recall in recent memory, Romney, McCain, Bush, Bush, Dole, Bush, Perot. Can you recall in recent history? Now, that's going back well over 20 years of Republican candidates. Can you recall seeing the nominee take this much collateral fire from the party bosses on the federal level? Never. Republicans rapidly close ranks behind their nominee. And that, that to me, is something Donald Trump has to address in the next few weeks. How? I think he needs to quit making enemies of people. But how? I mean— in other words, he needs to realize that Hillary Clinton is who he's campaigning against now, not Jeb Bush or, or Mitt Romney or Marco Rubio. I don't understand, and that's and the, that's the sincere truth. I don't understand his long-term f- formula. 
I and because yeah. not only on his side are there people that he has to appease in order to get their endorsement and access to people who like them. There's a there are a lot of Senate races going on this fall. Yes. Republicans could be in a bad position in both uh, the Senate and the White House, depending on what happens on November 8th. Oh, absolutely. Especially since the flip side of all those seats that the Republicans won in 2010 is that they are now up for re-election in 2016 in more Democratic states mm-hmm. than the collection of Senate races that was up in 2014. So if you're talking about being a Republican incumbent in Illinois or New Hampshire or yeah. Pennsylvania, and you have a presidential candidate who is sinking your ticket, that's a, ve- that's, you know, that's a very bad thing. If you're the Kelly Ayotte or the uh, Pat Toomey yeah. or the Mark Kirk. Can you ascribe from a distance? We're playing armchair, yes. you know, political analyst here, but can you ascribe any understanding or motivation to why Paul Ryan and even Newt Gingrich, who flipped on him overnight over the Mexican judge comment right. and the tra- Charles Krauthammers of the world. We've known about candidates who didn't have the behind the curtain support of party bosses. Right. But they've gone out of their way to be critical and distance themselves from this guy. Right. Why do you think that is? I think they're kind of embarrassed. And I think, too, that they're used to presidential elections being held under a certain playbook, which Donald Trump is not playing by. And I think that drives them crazy. The thing is, there is a way to handle that. You know, the the way Newt Gingrich handled it, I think, was a little better than Paul Ryan, because in Newt Gingrich's case, he made some very sharp, you know, public rebukes of Trump. Mm -hmm. And while from a you know, unity standpoint, that wasn't good. I think it was also kind of like a signal that not all was well in Republican land. I think so. Paul Ryan, in my opinion, handled it the worst possible way because he came across as indecisive and, you know, telling reporters that you're not in the, you don't know when you're going to make up your mind or you're not in the mood. He doesn't want to endorse this guy. Right. It's clear that a number of them have endorsed him out of the ethics shown in a, in a presidential election. He's a nominee, so everybody falls in tow. Right. And you do what you do every four years. Right. But people don't want to endorse Trump. See, I think with him, there there is a positive thing that happens from him not being seen as an insider. Mm-hmm. And the idea of someone that the, in, the establishment, quote unquote, dislikes being the candidate is attractive to some people. Absolutely. But then it begins to lose its level of attractiveness when an Orlando happens. Yes. And there's another aspect, too, and this is this is getting into the real politics stuff that I love talking Let's about. Let's do it. Okay. My listeners are smart. Yeah, they're, they're very smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the stuff we're talking about is the stuff that to the average voter truly does not matter. It's inside baseball. But I'll tell you where it does matter. So when we're talking about the politically connected Republicans who are scared to death or openly dismissive of Trump. Mm-hmm. I'd already mentioned that, that has a costly effect if in certain swing states, especially like, say, Virginia. We have a lot of these professional Republicans are living in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Yeah. But there's another aspect to this lack of unity, and that is this. If you are a Republican donor 
and Donald Trump is scaring the you-know-what out of you, and you decide to withhold your funds for the first time ever from the Republican presidential mm-hmm. nominee. Like it seems like the Koch brothers at one point were mm-hmm. saying they were going to do that, and even almost intimating that they might go the other way, which I don't think any of us really believed. Right. The thing is, for the people who are following politics intimately and who happen to have a checkbook that they could deploy, this lack of party unity is especially costly because— it's not at all clear to us how much money Donald Trump can really raise on right, his own. Right. And even though I think that there's a saturation point when it comes of but it comes to too much money being of limited use, mm-hmm. you still have to have funds to compete. And if you have Hillary running dozens of ads day after day in Ohio and Pennsylvania castigating Donald Trump and Donald Trump does not have an effective response, that's extremely costly. It almost sounds like 2012 Absolutely. all over again. They are the perfect candidates for one another. Right. They are the perfect candidates for one another. And I don't, I wonder, do they really see it that way? But I, I'm not sure that they always do because I have heard him say things about Senator Clinton that or, that or, or excuse me, Secretary Clinton. Well, she was Senator too, but Secretary right. Clinton, that could be said about him. And vice versa. Right. She questions his position on women when 20 plus years ago, some of the things that she said about the women accusing her husband of harassment or and or assault. Right. Could be said about her. Those things. And so it's interesting with him. And I, I want to we're, we're going to talk about a path to victory for both of them. But I want to wait until after the 4th of July oh, to absolutely. do that. Okay, but I but we're and not give done your here. Listeners, something else to talk, talk that, about. That's right, and, and I'm not done. Yes. We're not done now because there's a. I want to go to the other side and talk about yes. uh, Secretary Clinton, but that's something that we can talk about because by then we will have more uh, more information on the plate to chew over. Right on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders, his sheer presence in this campaign has forced Clinton to stay further to the left than I think she would have had he not been in. I think by now she would have started her jog to the middle more with her rhetoric and some of the policy positions she would allow to seep out by her surrogates. Right. He has forced her to stay solidly to the, to the extreme left because that's where he is and that's how he has garnered the support of so many young people and socialists like himself. Yeah. Talk about his impact on her in this election so far. You know, the thing about Bernie Sanders, though, he definitely is an avowed socialist, but I'm not entirely in agreement with the idea that it was 100% leftist Democrats that were the backbone of his support. Really? I think it was people who didn't like Hillary Clinton for one way or another. Uh, Absolutely. That's that's that group that I talked about earlier who just don't like Secretary Clinton who just happened to be registered Democrat. Yes. And there's another aspect, too, to Bernie Sanders' support. Even though his policy positions are clearly on the left side of the political spectrum, he's unfiltered. And he's there's, there's just an authentic- like Trump. Yeah, there's, a, there's an authenticity, the difference being that Bernie Sanders, to me, comes across as the lovable but goofy uncle. Yeah. Whereas Donald Trump, you know, he tends to push the button a little yeah. more. But Bernie Sanders, you know, you listen to him speech, he's kind of, you know, harmless, and he's yeah. waving his arms yeah. around. and 
his his rallies, you know, he could easily speak for 30 minutes about nothing. You don't realize the time has passed. <laughs> because you're entertained. Yeah, he, he's very entertaining. This is a serious matter. Yeah. Let me tell you, Hillary, <laughs> I got a problem with that. And, you know, the thing is, those were the victory speeches that I think were extremely interesting to listen to, despite the individual policy positions he had. Yeah. So I think that there was a kind of a lot of outsider appeal that he had, and yeah. that's what fueled his candidacy. The biggest mistake he made, in my opinion, was he never was able to crack into the black vote. Mm-mm. And Well, he made some comments. He has made some comments to me that didn't translate well. One of the things that I noticed about him is the context almost always, I can't say always, but almost always I heard him when I heard him talk about it, the context in which he spoke about black people almost always was about criminalization, exactly. being in prison and, and, you know, being criminals. And you leave out a pretty large section of black people, especially young black people who aren't selling drugs yes. and who are who aren't thugs and who are in colleges and who are trying to make something of themselves. And I think. He doesn't really speak to them at all. He just says, you know, it's almost like he believes every young black man is a criminal or about to become a criminal. Right. And I think that that's that's one of the things the media light only lightly covered. But I think is very important in understanding his background is that he's been living in Vermont for the last few decades. Yeah, he's only seen two or three black people in his 80 years on the planet. Right. So he strikes me as somebody who's been living in a bubble who, you know, under he only has a range of experience mm-hmm. of one particular type of people and so when he made res- he made some remarks that in my opinion i thought were very foolish like when he dismissively wrote off the south because he says well there's all a bunch of conservatives there it's like uh in democratic primary no that it does not work that way well if you look at the number of people who have been in the white house or been in prominent positions in federal government south it is <laughs> But I think, but I think not know, all of them, but a big yeah. number of them. We 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 love we love our politics, and we're good infighters. And by the way, Hillary and Bill were at one time the first family of the state of Arkansas, mm-hmm. yes. which is the Louisiana's toupee. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so I think Bernie Sanders's mindset, where I don't think he really appreciate he he really did not understand how to communicate appropriately to minorities, right? The second thing which I think hurt him, and this is not really his fault per se, but this is just, you know, public perception. The worst thing that could happen to you is if you keep racking up a series of 49% almost wins. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's three states I think that arguably cost him the nomination. Nevada, Illinois, and Massachusetts. Massachusetts, intriguing. Tell me why. So in those states, Bernie Sanders came very close to winning, but he didn't. And so in Massachusetts, what was costly was it's stereotypically thought of as a liberal state. Yeah. It's really more of an interesting mixture between blue-collar union Democrat and the academics at Harvard. Yeah. The thing was, if he was unable to break through in a state like that, that to me was kind of a bad omen for him with regards to breaking through in other states like, say, Ohio and Illinois and mm-hmm. all that. But the thing was, the timing of those losses occurred at the times that the press was trying to crown a winner or a loser. Yeah. If Bernie had won Massachusetts on Super Tuesday, if he had won Illinois on that that Super you know, Tuesday 2 night, yeah. the press would have had a different narrative about who's taking the lead. Sure. 
And he only really had a couple of true upsets, like in Michigan, but most of the rest of his victories were in caucus states or states with few right. minorities. Right. He needed a win in a more diverse state to establish credibility, sure. and that never happened. And so as much as the what happened with the superdelegates made him upset, the reality is he did not have a majority of pledged delegates mm-hmm. or unpledged delegates or 50% of Democratic primary voters. I want to do this uh, within the next few minutes here but because you know, we went a little longer on, on this, but it's been good because of the information. It's been so great. Quickly about... Orlando, yes, and its impact specifically on the candidates. Just as a as a quick primer, we know that Donald Trump has made the claim that we should ban Muslims from coming into the country, and he's the only one saying that. Right. It is an unrealistic policy to enforce. Right. In my opinion. And I don't think it does us any favors with members of the intelligence communities in some of these largely Muslim countries who actually want to help us or at least be a part of the movement to kill the people who want to cause mass murder and hysteria. Right. From a public relations and people say, that's not a public relations issue, Clay. It's politics, okay? Mm-hmm. He can say that kind of thing. We have to find a way to vet people who practice this form of Islam yes. and catch them before they come here. But to say every Muslim, we should keep them out of America. Lots of average, everyday citizens can say that because they've got the right to say what they feel. Right. But a major candidate for the White House can't say that and you just don't have to understand it I'm telling you you can't do it right but inside of that is the pearl of frustration that most people want to hear from Washington about the people who are doing this this kind of thing and while some people don't like that he's saying it and they may not even believe that he can make it happen they love the fact that he's got the balls to talk about this problem as being that and wants to do something extreme to stop it. Right. On the flip side, Secretary Clinton takes a measured approach, but of course she leans heavily on comments he's made about banning Muslims and statements against Islam. And I have to agree with Trump on one thing. When the president gave his speech after the attacks, he was measured. He, he, I mean, he delivers great speeches. Right. And he called it terrorism. He didn't say radical Islamic terrorism, which I think he should have, but he didn't. But it didn't really matter to me. He called it terrorism. Right. But he did show more anger against Trump in his response about Trump's comment about banning Muslims than he did about these kinds of things that are happening around the globe. Your thoughts on all of that? Well, I think in the short term of a, in the early phases of a crisis, people are inclined to go with the president. And the worst thing that you could do is give the appearance that you're politicizing a crisis. I would agree. Because one of the one of the things that Trump said that I think was very bad was he was basically giving the appearance of gloating, you know, saying, see, I told you so. Yes. All these times. I've but been he talking. does that. Yeah. Which is not a good look, but he does do that. No. And, you know, the, the other thing, too, about crises, which is why you give measured responses, is that oftentimes you don't really know everything there is to know. Right. The details typically come tumbling out oh, a few sure. days later. And so we're starting to find out a lot of interesting things about the killer 
and you know that he was like on- he didn't have a criminal record. Right, but he was kind of on the he was kind of like on the shadows where because he had you know there was the abuse of his wife yep. and he was uh, abusive at work and yeah. he, he sounds like just basically a hot tempered person like some moron who couldn't control his emotions right and then he associated with people that put him on the FBI's and that is when the red flags right should go up but you know the, the tricky thing about that is it's. Ext- I agree that he should have been more heavily watched. The very delicate thing when you're talking about that is you're getting into issues of how much do you want the government spying on people? I Not only do I agree with you, I I don't know that I'm qualified to talk, because you know, Jeff Ledeff was just on talking about that. I don't know that I am qualified to talk about every specific measure the, the federal government and law enforcement should be using on a 50,000 foot level. I want them to fix the problem and do something about this and take it seriously. But getting on the ground floor of it, there are things about this that the average ones, the average person we can't understand. And we don't know how much they know, but don't tell us because they don't want the people who are about to perpetrate crimes to know that they're onto them. Exactly. And then there's kind of one of the things that I think will be a subject of a psychological study someday is what external stimuli is it that causes one of these unpeople, stable people to finally snap? Because you better believe that there's thousands and thousands of people walking around right now who are probably on some kind of an FBI list, yeah. but they may never snap. But then all of a sudden you have Mateen, and then you have the guy who he was about to go berserk in Santa Monica, California, mm-hmm. which, of course, that one was foiled. Right. But the thing is, you're getting into a very delicate argument about civil liberties. Yeah. And, you know, the question is, to what extent do you start giving up your freedoms yeah right so 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 the candidates here just because i want to move on to 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 to, uh, the governor here Mm -hmm. and we'll only do that briefly but just give a grade on the handling of this by the president mr trump and secretary clinton first with the president president i would give him a b plus okay mr trump c secretary clinton i'd give her a b plus wow because the thing was what I think people most want in the early stages of a crisis is to be reassured that everything's all right and we're on top of it. Yeah. In other words, if Clinton had given that sarcastic what difference does it make kind of response, yeah. that would have been very bad for her. But the measured response in this situation was called for. Hey, she gave she gave a good speech, and I think Trump did have the opportunity to imply that I was right about how bad this is. Right. And I was right about how big of a problem this can become without having to actually say, I was right about this. And it just it, right. it didn't do him any favors. There's also another aspect, too, to Trump, which is why I'm giving him a bad grade. And that is the concept of the tipping point. In other words, you have a lot of people who they may be loyal Republicans and they may want to support Trump. But if they keep seeing things that he's saying that, repeatedly disappoint them yeah at some point they're gonna say you know what i can't support this guy and by the way you can't uh i'm a fan of um or at least i was of a guy who does a syndicated radio show and i won't call his name here but he often passes off what trump says as just being a strong alpha male right that's bs okay because in politics you have to have the ability to show discipline yes and strategy 
wins elections, not bluster alone. In fact, if you want to talk about strength versus bluster, what I think is a perfect contrast was right after 9-11 when George W. Bush went to New York City with the bullhorn. Mm -hmm. I think he looked extremely presidential at that Absolutely. point. And his approval ratings shot skyward. Absolutely, but it was, it was one of those moments where it was a, it was a great measure yes. of how you speak to the feeling of the country. And I, this was an opportunity that I think Trump has to this point missed. Now, we're still in the direct aftermath of what happened. And if he comes forward with a coherent plan that has, I mean, really, because the guy's not a dummy, as he tells you, he went to Wharton. (laughs) He's got the ability to string together some sound linear thoughts, but I, I, I haven't seen it. And see, we could talk another two hours about this, and I'm sure we didn't hit on everything, which is why after the 4th of July, we're going to come back and talk more about this. Okay. John Bell Edwards, governor of the great state of Louisiana. What grade do you give him through June or B. middle of June? A I give B? Him a B? Yes. Jesus, I wish I had you as a professor. You're, you're a good grader, <laughs> man. So well, why a B? Why a B? So the way I look at Governor Edwards' tenure thus far is I would say he's a work in progress. Because he has been handed some unfavorable things at the outset of his governorship. And one of the things, too, that he's not had to face, that he's facing that no other Democratic governors had to face before, is a Republican legislature. Yeah. And that Republican legislature, especially the House, is kind of asserting their independence, mm-hmm. which from Governor Edwards's standpoint would be the worst time for them to assert their independence. So what I see has happened is that there's a lot of tangling that's going on that I think that at some point the two are going to have to learn the two meaning Governor Edwards and the Louisiana House of Representatives they're going to have to learn to work with each other yeah because it doesn't look good for either party to be squabbling and the thing the thing about Governor Edwards is he's going to have to realize that he was elected with the vote of Darden Republicans and Right now, they're in his corner because I think they appreciate that he's been given a hard task and he's got to clean up the state budget. And they like the fact that he's steadfast and, you know, has integrity and so forth. But I think they're going to expect that he's going to have to be the adult in the room. And, you know, the, the things that he's done that are smart and not smart, the not smart, I would say, was trying to get a Democratic House speaker when he didn't have the votes. Because the thing is, once you're exposed as being weak, all of a sudden your opponents are going to take advantage of that over and over again. Now, one thing he's done, which I think is smart, is I think he is determined to fix the budget for once and for all. And one thing I thought that he did with the capital outlay process, which is you know the annual bill that funds the construction projects around Louisiana, is basically he's trying to take a hard line on all these these projects. The, the new and shiny things mm-hmm. when we have deferred maintenance issues that are hitting us. I, uh, I believe tough days are indeed ahead for the governor. I don't know that it's going to last a long time, but based upon what I hear, a storm is brewing mm. and we'll see how he handles that. If, if these conditions continue to form the way that they are. And that's about as much as I can say about that. But I think that he should do himself a favor and make certain that 
he grows a coalition of doers. Yes. And he should do it quickly because if he does not, I just see problems in his immediate future. A lot depends on his relationship with, I would say, 10 to 20 more, quote unquote, moderate Republicans in the House. That's going to determine his political future. But, you know, the thing, Clay, when you talk about his future, I also think that Louisiana's economy can't get any worse than it has been for the last year. So, in other words, things are going to start picking up with regards to oil price and employment and all Mm -hmm. that. And the 2019 election is a long ways away. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, this is getting into, you know, when I evaluate kind of like the core of a person to where I think someone is viable or not. Yeah. One thing about Governor Edwards is he strikes me as a very disciplined, cautious person. In other words. appears that way, but you never know. Yeah. Well, I think, too, he's disciplined and cautious. But since he came from the Army, I think that he kind of has you know, a very much command and control kind of mentality as to how he does things, which with the legislature is not what you want to do. Listen, I agree. And he's following a governor that nobody's going to be sending any bunt cakes to uh, <laughs> for the holidays. And if they do, don't eat the cake, Bobby. Yeah. So it's it's something. But, we, we, you know, this is something we'll get back on to after the 4th of July. This has been fun. Welcome to the studio here. Work in progress, man. G- glad nice. to have you in the room here. And I can't wait to pick this up with you again. John Cuvion. now let's tell people how they can find you and hear more of your fascinating, insightful information. Certainly. So I like to uh, opine on things on social media quite a bit, mm-hmm. and equally on Facebook and on Twitter. On Twitter, my handle is at WinWithJMC. On Facebook, JMC Enterprises is my company name, and that's, that's the company page. And so periodically, I like to set a goal of once a week, I do like to talk about things that are related to the presidential race or to things I see, say, with voter registration Uh data or things going around the state politically. All of that I do for the benefit of your listeners. And and it's it's really something that I enjoy doing in addition to my day job of being a political consultant. (laughs) (laughs) And a good one. And a good one. John, I thank you so much. And I'm just going to assume that podcast 225 gets an A plus. I mean, I mean, if you're handing out B pluses like uh, Tic Tacs and, you know, in a dentist office, we got to get an A. So (laughs) absolutely. Thank you, bud. See you in a few weeks. Yep. Promote your business or organization on Podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the Podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. Long show today, huh? Man, great conversation with... Former Baton Rouge Police Chief Jeff LaDuff and, of course, our buddy John Cuvion talking about Orlando and then the politics of the presidential election. And we didn't get to get into the discussion about Governor Edwards as much as I would have liked to today, but that was because of time. I mean, this show is already going to be well over an hour and we got to save some. We could hold some back and get into it with you down the road. 
Coming up, we're going to be talking again with the other Kuvion who's been on this show, Marine Colonel David Kuvion. He's going to be on our 4th of July edition of the show. In fact, uh, that show will air on Monday, July 4th as well. And I will probably pull double duty that week because on Memorial Day, we ran that show on Monday and that was the only one for the week. And I heard from folks who were looking for the other show. So we'll try to get that done for you the week of the 4th of July. And as you heard me talk about with John, we'll get him back after the 4th to talk more about the presidential campaigns. And hopefully you got some good insight from what you heard from us today. Uh, just as a sidebar before we get out of here, and, and, and again, I didn't do this in the beginning of the show because we jumped right in. I encourage you to hit that subscribe button so if you have the podcast app on your Apple device, the show will pop right into there. And if you are a non-iOS user, you can still get to us at podcast225.com or you can download that Talk 107.3 mobile app. It's free and you can get our show weekly there and any additional future content that's coming from Podcast 225. Last weekend, as I sit to record this, I started watching the first of a five-part series by ESPN's 3430. OJ Made in America is about the life of OJ Simpson. And it was probably three days. I didn't watch the Saturday night one. I DVR'd it and I watched it Sunday before I watched the playoff game. And I watched part, the second half of the first part, if that makes any sense, yesterday. And all I can say is, wow. So part two aired last night, as I said, and record this closing. And I didn't watch it. I DVR'd it. I'm going to start it this evening. But I spoke to a buddy of mine, a Stephen who, uh, Atkins, who's a listener of the show. What's up, Steve? Who watched the second edition of the 30 for 30. And he mentioned how just in, in, it pulls you in. And if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to watch it. It is a fascinating piece on race and politics and violence and status. And regardless of what end of the political spectrum you come from, I think you're going to look at that and go, wow, it is a well done piece of material. So check out that 3430 by ESPN Films. I think they do about a billion of these and I haven't seen but maybe a handful of them. But this one had such fanfare before the first part of it that I was intrigued and I was not let down. So check that out. All right, guys, uh, that's my suggestion of something to watch for this week. And we'll catch you next week here on The Clay Young Show on iTunes, where it's free there on the Talk 107.3 mobile app. Thank you, Gordy Rush. And, of course, at the website, podcast225.com. Have a great one. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.